From Hamilton Place Strategies in Washington, D.C., this is the HPS Insights Podcast. Welcome to HPS Insights, a podcast from Hamilton Place Strategies, analyzing the current events impacting the business and political communities. I'm your host today, Andrea Christensen, a partner at HPS. And today I'll be talking to Elliot Owensby, uh, a senior director also at HPS. We're going to talk about student debt. And we have some really good timing to talk about student debt. Uh, when we first talked about doing this, Elliot, uh, President Biden had just extended the moratorium on student debt payments. And now we're getting word that he's considering canceling at least $10,000 in student debt for every borrower. So we, we certainly planned this right. Uh, welcome, Elliot. Yes, yes. Hot off the presses, literally minutes ago, there's a report of $10,000 forgiveness. Yes, very timely. Well, first, let's just take uh, a step back here um, and talk a little bit about the facts on student debt. I mean, I, I guess I should say that Elliot and I have worked together on student debt issues and, and both just been very interested for many years. Yeah. Uh, most of our Twitter DMs have to do with uh, student loan related threads. So Elliot is going to tell us a little bit more about that. So who has student debt? How bad is it? Uh, is student debt bad? Should we be yeah. thinking about it? Is bad debt? Is it more like a mortgage? Let's just kind of high level student yeah. debt in America. Go. Yeah. Oh, that's it. Okay, good. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I think student debt and the reason I think that you and I have for a long time been sort of fascinated by student debt, but, you know, really kind of higher ed finance uh, in the U.S., you know, the concept is, I guess we should just say as a baseline, right? Like the concept of student loans is uh, very uh, American. That's not how a lot of other systems work, but what it generally looks like in America today is a, effectively a, a subsidized loan with a capped interest rate that you receive from the Department of Education, you know, like in 90 90- Eight percent of cases, and typically that comes with uh, roughly a ten-year repayment schedule, and so that is kind of the the mechanics of what that looks like. Um, you know, people who have gone through this process know you basically borrow each year. <laughs> we can talk a little bit about how the price of college might change from year to year, and then your student debt uh, also needs to accommodate that. Um, but that generally is the is the mechanism. What is equally fascinating about student debt is is the kind of debate in DC, the debate in the media, um, kind of certainly the debate on Twitter about, you know, how big an issue it is or isn't, Um, you know, just again, kind of table stakes, right? Um, I think the latest data is like 35% of American adults have graduated from college. Like that's not a lot in the scheme of what we're really talking about. And we know something like two thirds of people, it's like 60%, I think is the latest data, um, borrow some amount of money to go to college. So again, you're talking about uh, sort of a fraction of a fraction here in terms of the people that the kind of these potential proposals would affect. Yeah, I've seen about like 13% of the population. Right. So maybe it's a it's an outside share of the like policy debate with a relatively narrow potential set of beneficiaries, I guess. Related to that, though, and, and I should say I should give a lot of credit to the government data on student aid. Right. And student debt, Andrew, like you and I sit and go through the federal student aid like database. It, it's remarkable, frankly, how transparent a lot of the data is around the federal student loan portfolio. And so if you compare, as we have at HPS at at different points in time, you know, what is the average in like the media coverage of student debt? 
what is that average, you know, uh, debt burden versus the actual average of student debt? You know, the actual, I should say the actual median, I think is around $22,000. You know, we've looked at it at different points over time. Some cases that media average is like $80,000. So it's, the policy debate is complicated by the fact that, you know, I think not everyone's as, a, as, as familiar with maybe the data and kind of the facts on the ground, both in terms of what they're proposing and then what the potential impacts might be. Yeah. And, and what's always interesting to me is that the, the people that tend to have the highest levels of debt, you know, people with $100,000 plus, are generally people who have graduate degrees. So we're talking doctors, lawyers, um, people we normally think of as high earners are the ones with the highest level of student debt. And, and the ones with the lowest level of student debt are actually those who tend to struggle with repayment the most, because in many cases, they, they didn't actually finish college uh, to get the degree that would give them the earning power to do that. So going to, to sort of the specifics of President Biden's plan, uh, you know, he said it on the campaign trail, and, and now we're getting indications today that, you know, 10,000 in, in student debt cancellation. I mean, there's others uh, arguing for total federal debt cancellation, as much as 50,000, things like that. Let's kind of just talk about debt cancellation as a policy. Um, a lot of economists generally seem to agree that it's, it's regressive. It tends to benefit a small subset of Americans who are already better off than average. I mean, Adam Looney at the Brookings Institution found, I think, one third of all student debt is owned by the wealthiest 20% of households and only 8% by the bottom 20%. So so kind of just what's your take? What What's the conversation right now in terms of does debt cancellation writ large make sense as a policy? Yeah. Well, and honestly, I think a lot of it, you kind of have to start with like, why are people borrowing money to go to college? Right. But like, and, and what we know, again, empirically, what the data shows is that if you go to college, if you complete a degree, you make more money than someone who did not either go to college at all or someone who did not complete a degree. Right. And so generally speaking, as a matter of like the return on your investment in borrowing that money to go to college, you're you're going to come out ahead. It's a good investment. You know, it's I don't think it's anyone's favorite thing to do, obviously, but it's a good investment to borrow money and then in the future make much more money, especially on a lifetime basis than someone who did not go to college or didn't complete a degree, right? Would you say that something like 10,000 then is much more reasonable? Exactly. And that pattern extrapolates by the way, and you you mentioned like having $200,000 of student debt is a real, real outlier if you did not go to a graduate professional program, right? Generally speaking, the people who have that much debt are generally speaking, earning a pretty good living for themselves as a you know professional, right? And so that when that's that's what I would start with when you talk about overall forgiveness, right? And you're right that there's this argument of like, well, the federal government has this portfolio of federal student loans, so it's totally within their right to just wipe it all out. And I'm not a lawyer. I'm not going to speak to like the legality of that or whether there's an issue there or not. I have no idea, but it's true that as a matter of the data, the largest benefit would accrue to the people with most, the most student loans, which we know to be the people making the most money. So there's a, there's a mismatch there, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and a lot of kind of commentators on this have just indicated that this could be a, an election play to try to drive out college-educated right. voters in November. So I have some data for you on that. Oh, do tell. I'm a bad, I'm a bad guest. I forgot to share my data with you in advance. <laughs> okay, can I tell you, though? So I think, yes, the political calculus, you know, again, I'm not a politician. 
whatever. I think it's not hard to intuit kind of why this would be a popular uh, political position, right? Debt forgiveness, just generally speaking. So again, due to our friends at the Department of Education, we know, for example, that for people under 24 years old, 76% of them have less than $20,000 in student loans. Like a half a percent of them have more than $100,000 in student loans. Okay. Uh, same, roughly the same kind of proportion for people 25 to 34, 52% of them have less than $20,000 of student debt. And like 6% of them have more than $100,000. As you might expect, that, that share that has uh, more than $100,000 creeps up over time as you, you know, potentially as you get older, depending on how you pay back the loan. Um, but obviously most correlated with just more education and more expensive education. Um, so and the, the benefit here, like in the, the cohorts I'm looking at are 24 and younger, 25 to 34, 35 to 49, 50 to 61 and 62 and older. Almost all of them have about half of that cohort, about 50% of that cohort have less than $20,000 in student debt. So then you have to mirror that back with the politics of it. Like, is this a Gen Z play? Well, I don't know. 75% of them have less than $20,000. So it kind of, again, it's like a little bit of a, maybe a narrative violation. Like I'm not totally sure that this like magic $50,000 student loan thing, like, I guess if you get all your loans forgiven and then your friend gets more than that forgiven, you're you're more likely to, to vote for that person. But I, I don't know. The, the data is a little complicated. Yeah. And I mean, I think that, um, you know, it's interesting. You, you see a lot on Twitter about people saying that, well, that's not fair if, it, you know, I paid off my student loans. I, it's not fair if others do. I don't really buy into that argument that much. I mean, things change all the time. But, but what I do think is you're basically forgiving a bunch of debt that at least for college graduates are generally going to have a higher earning potential to actually repay it and putting that burden on the the majority of America that doesn't have a college degree and doesn't have student debt. And I think that there's some kind of fairness questions there when you get into that. But, you know, I think this brings me to kind of a, a broader question on like unintended consequences. So like, even if we think that it's a great political play. Um, You're going to drive people out to the polls in November. If you do this, like what does this mean for like kind of historic inflation? What does it mean for kind of broader discussions about government spending and, and, and programs? I mean, build back better has all kinds of, um, you know, like a universal uh, childcare, you know, things like that, 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 that arguably are are more targeted to, to people who need that kind of assistance more. So talk to me a little bit about the unintended consequences. Yeah, well, and as my grandpa loves to say, like, I don't know, but I'll guess with you, right? Uh, So I think the debate around the impact of forgiveness, I think you've seen change pretty substantially from, let's say, like November of 2020 to today, right? And and plenty of folks... you know, have, have weighed in with their, with their various takes. But I think there are two kind of interesting, like inflation related pieces, right? The first, like, I think the main argument or the main economic argument is that, look, I currently pay $400 a month or whatever it is. And if I didn't have that student loans, I would have 400 more dollars in my, in my pocket. Right. I think that's, and we've seen some of that kind of bear out with the moratorium. Let's take that as a fact. What I think that sounds like to me is people spending more money. And I think we've seen over the course of the pandemic, like as demand has increased, so has prices and, you know, paired with 
supply side issues. Uh, to me, that sounds sort of inflationary. And uh, people much smarter than me, I think, have have sort of said the same thing. The the other side of it that I find fascinating, I think, uh, and Matt Iglesias had a, had a great um, point on this, is that inflation itself is like, you know, pro borrower, if you will, right? Like inflation actually does as a, as a, as a matter of the, the effective cost of what you're paying, it actually decreases that effective cost, right? Because you pay the same amount of money, but inflation is messing around with the rest of the economy. So that, and, and I think people have tried to kind of back out like, well, at, you know, when you were paying $400 and CPI was 2.1, what was that cost? And, you know, the reading, I think today was five, two last month was seven, three or something like that in terms of the, you know, the, the annual inflation rate. And so you are realizing an effective savings, but again, I mean, Andrew, like this is not, what, this is not why people are, are pro forgiveness. This is not what people are talking about when they, this is just what you and I like to like to chew on a little bit. And when we think about, you know, what the data actually says. Yeah. I mean, that, hey, that's totally fair. Um, <laughs> and on that point, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll discuss uh, what I consider to often be the elephant in the room, which is the cost of college. We'll be right back. Hamilton Place Strategies, HPS, is an analytical public affairs consulting firm with offices in Washington, D.C., New York, and California. HPS uses substantive analysis to understand complex topics and create public affairs tools to explain issues to target audiences and reach critical stakeholders. We achieve our clients' goals by enhancing understanding of issues, products, and companies, and ultimately improving outcomes. Learn more at hamiltonplacestrategies.com. Or follow us on Twitter at HPS Insight. Welcome back to HPS Insights. I'm your host, Andrea Christensen, and I'm here with HPS Senior Director Elliot Owensby. And we've been talking about student debt to cancel, to not to cancel. But one thing that's also really important here, and we haven't talked about yet, is the cost of college. So there's a lot of factors at play when it comes to the cost of college, but it seems to me that canceling any amount of student debt wouldn't really do anything for the next generation of college students who also need to pay for college and many of whom are going to have to pay, uh, take out loans to, to do that. So, so kind of what, what are your thoughts here? I mean, are colleges getting off scot-free here, Elliot? I, you can't trick me to answering that one. Um, I, I, I think in some ways, you know, I, I do, I have a, a, a small amount of empathy for the institutions. Uh, you know, I, I think what's clear are a couple things, right? Macro. The first is that uh, colleges are getting, you know, fancier, the buffets are getting uh, tastier, you know, the amenities are, you I, you can find, I'm not going to call anybody out, but I think you can find some examples uh, where, you know, relatively small liberal arts colleges have provided a world-class experience for their, uh, for their, for their students, um, which is great. That's your prerogative, but obviously has a bearing on cost. Um, I think the other piece for a lot, you know, I'm, I'm here in California. Uh, I am a, a proud graduate of the, of the public UC system in California, but something that's true here, that's true around the country are that the funding streams that have supported these systems for a long time have either been, you know, (laughs) speaking of inflation, you know, not adjusted for inflation or they've been actively eroded. And so you have, you know, systems like UCs, uh, but also broader colleges that are trying to figure out how to 
pay professors, run the facilities, give students the experience that they say they want uh, on, a, on a budget, effectively. And what that generally means is more is higher tuition, right? Uh, so which part of that equation do you want to start to mess with to either, you know, cap the, the increase in the price of college or to try and actively drive down the price of college? And I should say, I guess the last thing is that until very recently, I think, uh, and I actually, I think during the pandemic, there's been a downturn in enrollment, but until very recently, you know, more people than ever, every year was a new record for the number of people enrolling in college, which, I mean, again, I, I don't know. I'm not really here to argue that what, more people going to college is a bad thing. I think generally it is. The answer to your question, Andrew, is I'm totally going to punch it back to you because I want to know of those things, which you would mess with, because I think those are kind of the, those are kind of the the, the factors as I see them. And, and it's, you know, it gets complicated. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the, the number that stood out to me basically the most over the years is, was this, I think it was a 2015 or 2017 Fed study yeah. that looked at the impact of government subsidies, essentially yeah. how much you could borrow to go to college on the cost of college. And I think it was for every dollar in additional subsidy, it's like something like 55 or 60 cents um, of an increased, you know, cost of college. And so there's, there's a really strong, um, connection between, you know, how much the government's going to let somebody borrow and, and how much a, a school is going to charge. And so I think, and, and, and we'll get into this a little bit, I mean, about reforms or what else can be done to, to kind of improve this because, uh, you know, I think I'm generally in agreement with a lot of the people here that, this system isn't working as well as it could. That that college is good. That people should be able to go. That it that it uh, it's a, it's a path to you know to growth, to wealth, to all of these things, um, and it should be accessible to more people. Um, and I and I totally agree with that. It's just how do we get there? And does canceling debt do that? Like, will it help some people today? Yeah, absolutely, it will. Yeah. Um, but there's. A potential unintended consequences in the, in the economic environment we're in, and and B, it doesn't help. It doesn't help my children. Like it doesn't help your kids. You know, it doesn't really help anyone in the future. And so, I think that's kind of what's frustrating to me about this. If we're going to spend like over a trillion dollars or something um, to do something, let's do something that's going to like fix the actual system. And so that's kind of my next question to you. And again, I I know we don't have all the answers. People don't have all the answers, but you know, is it, is it fixing the income-based system? Is it capping tuition? Is it doing something, you know, but I also agree, like we have to pay talented professors to teach, you know, the students and, and we want them to be able to do that. And so um, I think we've got to figure out a way to control costs and we have to figure out a way to make the repayment system easier. Yeah. And also just, I think it was something like of the, it was the first wave of public service loan forgiveness a year or two ago where people had reached their 10 years or whatever it was to, to get their loans forgiven. And I think only like one to 2% of applications got approved. So all these people who were like, I'm getting my loans forgiven because I've been working for the government or at a nonprofit for 10 years, <laughs> we're just basically told, nope, you don't. And so there's clearly some systematic problems that, yeah. that need to be addressed. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I was thinking back, you know, I think when, uh, when Senator Sanders ran, ran the first time in 2016, you know, there was a debt forgiveness piece paired with also free college, 
right, to try and kind of get at this dynamic. And I, and I, I would agree with you that, you know, I'm saying that's the proposal, I guess. I'm not necessarily endorsing it. But, you know, I think that, I guess, to me, it starts with like, what is the goal? What is the goal? Is the goal that there is no student debt in America? Okay. I mean, that's an ambitious goal, but but if that's where we're going to head, then we can work backwards from there. Is the goal that, you know, um, there isn't a... Uh, you know, if you make less than a certain amount of money, you don't need to borrow to college. Or if you're fam- you know, if you come from a family that makes less than a certain amount of money, you don't need to borrow for college. Okay, to me, to me, that's like you're, we're getting warmer, right? That to me, that's on the right track. I, I don't think the goal is that, and I think this was the criticism of a lot of the free college proposals is like, I don't know, like uh, Elon Musk. I think now has a couple kids. Do Elon Musk's kids need free college? Uh, no, they just need Twitter accounts. But like, I think. <laughs> Yeah, to, you had to get that. Uh, but you know, I so it's like, what, what, uh, what are we, what are we aiming for? You know, me personally, my my kind of personal bias would be something along those lines. And I think you have seen, by the way, a lot of schools, uh, especially schools with the resources to do this, start to set up programs of like, okay, look, if your family, you know, I, I hate to give Stanford credit for anything, but I know this is true at Stanford. You know, uh, if you may, if you come from a family that makes less than a hundred thousand dollars a year, you you're basically going to go to Stanford for free. And like to me, and they have the resources to make that happen. Obviously, it's a relatively small school, so on, so on, all the relevant caveats. But to me like that general type of kind of means testing of expanding grants of expanding, you know, yeah. kind of scholarship aid. I think you're headed in the right direction. If there are, if there are equity concerns, I would be totally open to a, a program that targets HBCUs or, or things along those lines where we're, we have a much more focused impact to achieve the goal we ultimately are driving towards. Right. Like, yeah, I, yeah. I think like the means testing thing is, is really interesting because the point is, is people who can afford to, to, to go to college should be able to go to college but what we yeah. want to do is make sure that people who who don't have the means are are have the assistance that they need right. and that's really important um and so i think you know i think you're onto something i think frankly a lot of people would agree with you it's just you know i mean we don't need to get into like politics in washington dc uh during this but it, it's it's a question of you know how we get there but there there are some good proposals out there i mean i think brookings i think aei i think there's been a lot of really interesting conversations about you know what we should be doing i mean i know i know you know within higher ed policy um community colleges are you know verging on a, a trope probably just given how many efforts over the years from many different administrations there have been to expand access but i can't personally let it go without plugging it i went to a city college it cost me like i would say i think my books cost more than my tuition you have to do some inflation adjusting but uh want to say it was maybe like 500 dollars a semester for each for my tuition and then the books were more expensive than that i was living at home it more or less worked out for me, but I think that expanding that type of model um, is 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 interesting, and, and actually it relates back, by the way, to your one of your prior points on most of the students that default. You know, they borrow less than ten thousand dollars. You know, that can be some of the for-profit schools, some of the you know, I don't, I'm not here to cast aspersions on beauty school, but you know, th- that general type of model. It can also be people borrowing living expenses and going to city college. Right. So I don't mean to I don't mean to make light of it. I was fortunate that it worked out for me, but we got to figure out how to make sure that to me, that is what would be really regressive in higher ed is if we inadvertently set up this whole system that excluded or disproportionately burdened the, the students that are really trying to get in there and and, you know, access this opportunity.
Yeah. No, I think those are all really great points. And, and that is actually all the time we have today to talk about this. It's for listeners demand it. We can come back and, and have further. Yes, of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but to everyone, thanks for tuning in to another episode of HPS Insights. Uh, huge thank you to Elliot for joining us today. You can find out more about Hamilton Place Strategies work in our podcast at hamiltonplacestrategies.com or by following us on Twitter at HPS Insights. I'm your host, Andrea Christensen. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to the HPS Insights podcast produced by Hamilton Place Strategies. For the latest updates, Follow us on Twitter at HPS Insights and follow us on the web at HamiltonPlaceStrategies.com.